2: Rebuilding Britain starts here. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
0: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Salt Radio. It is, of course, the home of common sense. It's all looking a bit grim over in Afghanistan as we awake this morning to news of panicked evacuations, peaceful transitions of power. I don't think so. Threats of Sharia law being imposed on an increasingly frightened population, and suggestions of Taliban partnerships with the possibility of Pakistan, China, Russia possibly Iran, as the Islamic fundamentalists took over Afghanistan's capital city Kabul yesterday, seemingly without much of a fight. Millions of people were cowering for their lives as thousands headed for the airports to scramble onto planes, heading back to Europe and the United States. Just one month after President Joe Biden assured the world that there was no chance of the terrifying Taliban taking over the country, that is exactly what they have done. And largely, without a shot being fired, it would seem worse. They now have control of all the former US military bases filled with hardware and embassies in the country are now at risk of being ransacked for sensitive documents really it couldn't have gone any worse for the Biden administration and it's not going to get better anytime soon it seems remarkable does it not Uh, that one administration makes a decision does a deal with the Taliban expects the Taliban to honour that deal which is pretty much hope over experience then leaves all of the troops out of the country, takes all of the troops out of the country, leaving behind diplomats, leaving behind uh, interpreters, leaving behind people who would have helped uh, the Allied forces to defeat the Taliban back in the early part of this century. It just seems absolutely and utterly incredible. You can agree that it's a good idea to leave Afghanistan. You can agree that there's no business of ours to be there. But what you cannot agree uh, is to leave in this manner is absolutely nothing short of criminal. Up first today, we'll be speaking with Tobias Elwood, former soldier, MP and chairman of the Defence Select Committee. I'll be asking him what we should be doing next. Plus, security expert Will Geddes has also served there, will join us. And former Royal Marine and MEP James Blancy is also going to be here. Uh, He's got some stories to tell uh, about a very troubled region and what really could happen next. 0344 499 1000. As the first plane filled with British Nationals touched down at Bryce Norton this morning, we'll also be keeping you updated with the developments as they happen. There's already some chilling warnings coming out from the Taliban to people uh, concerning leaving the country people being told we don't want you to leave the country and we know what that means i think we'll also be asking peter hitchens why no one believed him 10 years ago when he warned of this catastrophe waiting to happen 0344 499 we've also got lots of other things to discuss could social media checks have stopped the mass shooting in plymouth last week and as vaccinations are about to be offered to all 16 and 17 year olds in england isn't it time we got this government to make a proper statement about where we are and what happens next on COVID. That's right. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Now also on television, of course. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the first show of the week here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We like to call ourselves the home of common sense. It was pretty awful watching uh, the events unfolding last week. On Friday, we talked about the fact that the Taliban could be in Kabul uh, in a matter of weeks. It wasn't a matter of weeks; it was a matter of hours by that stage. And it seems to me that Joe Biden's assertions that basically the Taliban could not overrun the Afghan army because there was only seventy thousand of them and three. 150,000 very well armed and very well um, trained troops because they've been trained by the US and the UK. However, it didn't work out like that. And the Taliban have basically more or less strolled into almost every part of the country that they've taken over. Uh, I don't believe there have been very many shots fired. But let's talk to Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP, a former soldier himself, chairman of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, a very good morning to you. Good morning team. It's been pretty unedifying I'm afraid hasn't it Tobias watching the um the events going on in Afghanistan. Um and we can argue I suppose until the cows come home about the efficacy of leaving um and or and or remaining but at the end of the day the way that the leaving has happened seems to have caused this problem. Yes you're absolutely right. I mean the world is
3: now a little more dangerous because of what's just happened and I think the west should hang its head in shame as as we've abruptly Abandon this country to what inevitably will be a terrible civil war. Um, I should make it clear that you know progress was being made over the last three to four years. You know, Afghanistan was not in the news. We were doing just enough to support the Afghan forces to keep the Taliban at bay. That's not to say there weren't a myriad of mistakes that have been made over the last two decades. You know, imposing a Western-style government on Afghanistan completely inappropriate for the tribal structures. But nevertheless, we were able to keep the terrorist groups out, and it was uh, moving forward. What we're now seeing, though, I'm afraid, is the Taliban taken over. They are not universally liked, uh, even by the Pashtun tribes themselves. But the Uzbeks and Tazeks, they've been caught off guard. They've dispersed. They will now arm up, and they will come back with vengeance. We had the Northern Alliance prior to the last civil war that will reform And
0: uh, as I say, we now will
3: have a terrible civil war.
0: Funnily enough, I was reminded of that very name, the Northern Alliance, because we've forgotten. I seem to remember many years ago um, after the invasion of Afghanistan the first time around and the Northern Alliance kind of took control. And there was a picture I remember when I was working at the Daily Mirror that appeared on the front page of the Mirror, which was the Northern Alliance basically, you know, killing people and hanging them and doing all the things that we said the Taliban uh, should have not been doing. And sometimes you wonder whether you're on the right side. The Northern Alliance are, are quite bloodthirsty as well, aren't they?
3: Indeed. And this is um, a testament to what Afghanistan is like, but it all stayed in Afghanistan. Um, I'm afraid what we've done is uh, relinquish back to the very insurgency, you know, who we went into defeat Mm. in the first place. It simply doesn't make sense. This is a political decision made by the Americans. And I'm sorry that Britain has been so wet to just follow suit. You know, we couldn't have done it alone. Let's make it very, very clear. But there are more and more, you know, American forces based in the UK than there the were American forces in Afghanistan. We could have formed a coalition to give that support to the Afghan security forces, that important assistance. Um, uh, but instead, you're going to see uh, a, a terrible direction of travel, a very dark chapter for for this country, which will spill over right across Asia to Europe as well. We're going to get migration issues. You're going to get a humanitarian disaster. You're going to get a refugee crisis, displaced people. And of course, don't forget where Afghanistan is. It sits between Iran, uh, China and Russia. This is an important part of the global real estate. And the irony that President Bush, uh, President Trump and President Biden all wanted to start paying more attention to China. Well, why not keep Afghanistan close? That would have made Mm. absolute logical sense. This, I'm afraid, is a humiliating strategic defeat for the West.
0: Well, it has been just another humiliating strategic defeat for the West, I'm afraid, hasn't it? Because that seems to be all that happens now is that the West goes into various different countries. Libya, uh, you can count Iraq now as a failed state pretty much. You know, we're about to see Lebanon probably falling into the hands of Hezbollah. You know, we're looking at Afghanistan possibly not even having to deal with the West anymore when they can deal with China.
3: Well, this is the problem. Is is we are, I think, in an era of growing instability. And where is the uh, you know, the, the the reputation of the West going after this? Uh, China will be watching things very very carefully indeed. You know, what went into Afghanistan was the largest technologically advanced military alliance ever formed, the most powerful, and we were defeated by uh, an insurgency armed with AK 47s and landmines. And the reason why we got it wrong uh, is partly because you know we, we, we took away the, the, our military might. But more importantly, we d- did not win over the hearts and minds properly. In Helmand province, I went there many, many times, always impressed with what our armed forces were doing. But there wasn't enough development and reconstruction and giving the country a sense of direction. Mm. And we then didn't stay the course of time. And you mentioned Libya, you mentioned Iraq, you, you know, Somalia, all these places. It's the same then. The only time we got it right is Germany after the Second World War. We still have troops there today. Now, if we had abandoned Germany literally the day after we won, guess where the Iron Curtain would have been? wrapping up against Mm. France. No, you stay committed. And like I said, when the geopolitical tectonic plates are
0: moving against China and Russia, Afghanistan would have been a great country to stay close to. Absolutely. And you're the chairman of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias. I mean, were you as a committee informed that as the troops were pulling out of Afghanistan, they were leaving behind some 4000 British nationals who may have been a mixture of uh, of personnel in the civil service or, you know, army personnel or diplomats of one kind or another. And that's not even counting, I don't think, the Afghan interpreters, those who helped with the, the British forces cause. I mean, were you told any of this as a Defence Select Committee? I was given a briefing by
3: the Defence Secretary. He spelled out um, the the programme of of what was going to unfold with the evacuation. It was pre-planned, and let me make it say it was going to take place this weekend anyway. What has caught everybody off guard, and you touched on it as well, is just the colossal speed in which the Taliban have taken over the country. The way the Afghans are, though, is that, any individual will look to see who's going to win, who, which side uh, should they uh, support, right. and when they see the 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 the, you know, the 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 situation turning, which started with Donald Trump releasing prison, the Taliban prisoners unconditionally, effectively, then many Afghans thought, "Well, it's only a matter of time now before the Taliban, uh, you know, march in. I might as well join the Taliban." Mm. So the numbers that you're seeing are actually those committed and could actually be Afghan forces who have just given up but decided to be on the, the winning side today.
0: Well, I suppose, and I saw a couple of videos yesterday, it's always difficult to know how accurate or, or or how true they are or how even recent they are. But I certainly saw a couple of videos yesterday uh, of people in the streets uh, surrounded by other people hanging in those streets. It might They might have been old videos, I'm not sure. Uh, purportedly they were from, from this weekend. But certainly if you're going to be risking death by being on the opposite side of the Taliban, obviously you're going to side with them.
3: Well, we're going to see massive reprisals now. We're going to see uh, you know, the, the uh, advancement of, of women's rights will be completely undermined and, and reversed. There'll be reprisals against any boys or, or, or men that actually help support the, uh, the international coalition. Girls will be uh, removed from schools. Women will be prevented from working. They'll all, be, all the females will be told to, to, to wear the burqas now. Uh, it, there's a ruthless interpretation of a Sharia law that will now impose on mm. Afghanistan. And many of them are fleeing, like like we see, because they believe that they are lives are in danger. And this is all down to us. And this follows, don't forget, the impressive G7 summit where grand statements were made on how we're going to check the reverse of Western, you know, uh, demise. We we signed that Atlantic Charter to counter the efforts, I think it was, on those who seek to undermine our alliances and our our institutions. And we pronounce global Britain and the White House replies with America is back. Yeah, where is it all when it comes to it? We've departed, and that's a disgrace.
0: It really is, and in many ways, more of a disgrace for the Americans than it is for us, because, you know, as much as I'm happy to criticise this government and Boris Johnson uh, as the next person, you know, if the Americans are saying we're out, I mean, I think uh, it would have been a bit difficult for Britain to do any sort of deal without the Americans inside of NATO. Um, And frankly, we just haven't got the manpower anymore. Well, we have the manpower. It's more the leadership that's required. We can't do all the heavy lifting. I make that very, very clear.
3: But we aren't good at leading. We did that a couple of times last century and the Americans weren't there to begin with. We can do that role, but it, re- it requires commitment, courage and leadership. And at the moment, that is wanting. You know, There's a vacuum there on the West to step forward. And I wanted Boris Johnson to, to do exactly that, to recognise the consequences as an ever-shrinking window of opportunity uh, is, is there. To say, actually, we've made the wrong call here. or the Americans have made the wrong call and we're not going to follow suit. Yeah we've been recalled to parliament now but sadly we're only having a one-line whip that suggests we're not taking this very seriously at all
0: well that's the trouble dominic raab was away on holiday i'm not going to have a go at him for being away on holiday people take do take holidays but why is the foreign uh, and commonwealth office so strangely silent about where he was why do they not want to say where he was on holiday
3: Uh, that is something you'll have to put the foreign and commonwealth office but i make it very very clear if there's if there's uh uh, a sense of leadership that's required, a, a sense of, of, of uh, c- uh, the importance of communication, of rallying uh, you know, Western resolve, it's now. We should not be following the American's line, which is a political judgment, and it is an absolute wrong call. And we're going to regret it at length.
0: Right. Well, I want to talk to you about what we should be doing next to us. But let me just touch upon this before we take a little short break. Qatar, very interesting country to me. Um, they are absolutely and utterly in cahoots, it seems to me, with the Taliban. I know they've been hosting peace talks, but they also recognise the Taliban and have had a, a diplomatic representative of the Taliban in Doha for many years. They've been accused previously of funding uh, terrorism, They've been a part of a blockade put up by the UAE, by Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states because they don't trust Qatar. Now, I'm not I'm not going to put sort of, you know, trivialise all of this into uh, what about the World Cup situation. But, you know, as if that country wasn't bad enough to host the World Cup, it now would appear that they're in cahoots with the Taliban. I mean, surely England should not be going there to play a football tournament. Well, I mean, that's a bigger
3: debate that we're spelling into. But you're right to say that, you know, what is the role of these countries that actually support uh, the Taliban? The Qatar would uh, would answer to say that they uh, they are a, uh, a Muslim country and they want to be that conduit. They want to be that communicator, uh, if you like, with the Taliban. And they've proved their role. What was sad is that Doha talks. That were taking place, the, the Taliban finally came to the table. You know, we learned from Northern Ireland that you're not going to win anything by military means alone. So the Taliban, the, the Doha talks were serving a purpose. But as soon as Donald Trump said, "Fine, the prisoners can can be released, and that our troops are going out, whatever," the Taliban only had to wait. They could make all the promises they liked, knowing that they didn't have to keep them. Um, but the bigger picture is actually uh, one to do with. Uh, moderate Islam in our modern world. You know, this is a, 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 a peaceful religion, but easy to, to misinterpret uh, for your own cause. And uh, uh, there is a challenge there as to how easy it is to uh, excite people to believe that they're going to be, uh, gain a fast track to heaven. You know, if they kill Westerners, yeah. And well, I mean, the,
0: the 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 bunch of guys operating inside the presidential palace with their uh, Kalashnikovs—they look particularly peaceful to me.
3: No, no, you're, and you're perfectly right. I mean, very sadly, I learned more about this because my brother was killed in Bali in 2002, and, 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 two, and you know, I can understand why was he attacked, and 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 by who? Uh, mm. It was by people that were. Uh, indoctrinated to believe that uh, they were going to be rewarded for their actions. Where are the voices, the moderate Islamic voices that condemn the interpretation of the Quran in this way? We don't hear them enough. And because of that, then there will always be a percentage of people, including homegrown Britons, uh, that will then, uh, as we saw with the Westminster attack and so forth, and in Manchester, who believe that they are doing something very honourable, which is obviously very
0: dishonourable. Absolutely. Tobias, stay with us, if you would. We're just going to take a short break. Tobias Elwood's here, uh, Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, Tory MP, of course, uh, knows a lot about Afghanistan. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP, Chairman of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, we're hearing just now that basically the, um, uh, the message has gone out. Um, to all airlines and stroke any um, airmen on the ground and airwomen on the ground at Kabul, that there is currently no control air traffic wise of Kabul airspace and of Afghanistan airspace. They're basically saying to people, if you take a plane up into the skies, um, you're doing so at your own risk. That seems to be an extraordinary position, um, because also, of course, we know one plane has arrived back at Bryson Norton. I don't know how many others are on the way. But that would put you in a very difficult position, as I would have thought um, a pilot. You can't just take, um, you know, a couple of hundred people up into the air in the hopes that nobody shoots you down.
3: No, and you're right. This uh, shows you the the demise, the collapse of uh, the uh, the civilian capabilities that we take for granted at any airport. Kabul Airport is split into two uh, areas. You've got the military side and the commercial side itself. The Americans have taken over the military side they will have their own capabilities to bring in, guide in uh, aircraft, military aircraft that is, uh, to land uh, relatively safely. Um, but on the commercial side, the commercial construct clearly has now collapsed. And therefore that's why the message has gone out to all aviators to say, uh, avoid uh, Afghan airspace. I think also there's been some shots fired, I understand, uh, on on aircraft uh, as well. So it's it's uh, if you don't have the necessary defensive aid suites, uh, it is a very, very dangerous place indeed. But it also means uh, that it's only the military that are able to continue with the evacuations.
0: Yes, absolutely. But it's going to be very difficult, I suppose, for the military and terrifying for people trying to get out of there um, if you're going to have to have, um, you know, gunfire strafing around an aircraft in order to stop people from shooting at it.
3: Well, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily use gunfire. There are other means of of, uh, of keeping them back. Uh, we're seeing pictures emerge of C-17s, the Globemasters, taking off. But uh, they are paralleled by Apache helicopters that are having to um, parallel and fly next to them just to disperse uh, the hundreds of of, of, of mostly what looking like Afghans, local Afghans, who also want to get away, to get them away from the C-17. So they're having to take extraordinarily dangerous means in order to get people Mm. out.
0: I mean, who would be responsible for giving the advice to not only Boris Johnson, but also presumably to Joe Biden, that basically this would not happen because they got they couldn't have got it more wrong. You know, I know you appreciated uh, that it happened quicker than, than everybody thought, but the intelligence was clearly very, very wrong on this.
3: Yes, I don't think anybody anticipated the the, the scale, the speed the, uh, of the collapse of, of the country uh, in this way. But like I said, there's been an awful lot of, of uh, planning by the Taliban realizing they only had it had to keep looking at their watches waiting for the the Americans to depart and once the Americans departed in large numbers um, and background their air, air, uh, air base was the, the best example, an appalling departure. this is, was, this is one of the largest bases in the whole of the country bigger than Kabul in fact. it was used by the Soviets as their main base. you go there and there's remnants of, of aircraft there from from their time in Afghanistan a massive base, the size of Bryce Norton. And yet the Americans abandoned it, not even telling the Afghan armed forces. So there's three or four hours where the doors, gates were left open, the electricity was switched off, and the base was looted before the Afghan hmm. forces can actually take over. And that I'm afraid is just an example, the appalling Uh, way that we are departing this country this is a textbook example of how not to do it
0: yeah well we can only hope it doesn't get any more dangerous for those people who are trying to get out but but let me ask you this finally Tobias I mean obviously as you say not a massively hopeful scenario on Wednesday when Parliament opens for a debate Um, but what would you tell Boris Johnson this morning if you could have a, a meeting with him face to face what should he do Firstly, uh, from our own perspective, we need
3: an inquiry. We need an independent inquiry as to what went wrong. I've called for this before, and the government has said, no, I will uh, underline the fact that we we do require one. We owe it to those people who died and have come back with life-changing injuries, is to understand what on earth went wrong. I want to ask why we believe that we have been so subservient to the American thinking, which was wrong. Why could we not form our own alliance, show some of our own leadership that we claim uh, to have? And then finally, I would want absolutely every MP to have a vote on the decision to retreat. I would like history to show and record uh, what every one of my colleagues uh, was thinking um, at this moment in time, because I think we'll look back at this as a juncture, as a tipping point as to Britain's uh, foreign policy, which at the moment I think is missing in action.
0: And it certainly seems as though there is no um, stomach at the moment for any kind of return uh, to troops going back into Afghanistan, aside from the ones, the 600 who were there, uh, to help people escape. There doesn't seem to be much of a, an appetite to send any troops back in.
3: No, but this is what leadership is about. It's having the stomach to do things that and the courage that perhaps other people think uh, are, are not not willing to, to do or have the means to do. Uh, if, BRIC, if America doesn't step forward, uh, who should do it? it? Britain must fill that vacuum. That's what we've done. We are a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, Uh, If we don't want to lose that position, then we need to show some international leadership. We have a history with this country. We have normally a better understanding of, 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 uh, thanks to our international reach and our connectivity, about the situation on the ground. And we should recognize what's going on here and what the trajectory of how terrible it's going to get and the opportunity we have to step forward right now and turn this around. But like I said, that would have opportunity to do that is shrinking very, very fast
0: indeed. It really is. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Tobias Oldwood MP, Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, who says he was told rather than engaged with uh, by the Defence Department on what exactly was going to happen. They were planning to evacuate people this weekend. Uh, they just weren't planning to have to evacuate them uh, now that the Taliban have taken over, uh, now that thousands and thousands of Afghan civilians are trying to get out of the country as well. It's complete um, and utter uh, mess in Afghanistan. There's a word for it which they use uh, in a certain television show, which i I can't use on the radio, but it really is completely and utterly hopeless. What is going on is really quite unforgivable. Joe Biden only a month ago said when asked, will the Taliban uh, risk overrunning the Afghan country and taking over in government? He said there was no chance of that. He said it's nothing like Vietnam because we won't be seeing people being rescued off the roofs of the American embassy in Kabul. Well, guess what? That's exactly what's happening. Joe Biden made a complete rick of it all. And Boris Johnson can take some of the blame as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, uh, about the terrible events of last week in Plymouth, uh, of course, where um, a young man shot dead five people, uh, claiming that uh, the world was unkind, that he had been dealt a very bad hand. He took uh, his own life as well with his gun. As a result uh, of investigations into uh, this man's uh, past, it was discovered that he had put quite a few social media posts up, which would have suggested that he was not really fit and proper uh, to own a gun. He had had the gun taken off him, and it was then given back back to him. Uh, It was taken off him because of an assault he was involved with, but he had apparently proven uh, that he was all right now, so they gave him his gun back. Now the suggestion is that police are going to be reviewing their practices and they're going to look at social media uh, over various different points in time to see whether people should be given gun licenses. Let's talk now uh, to Christopher Graffius, Executive Director of Communications and Public Affairs for the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. Christopher, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, whenever something like this happens, there tends to be something of a slightly hysterical reaction, I suppose, not, not unnaturally, uh, from people who don't really understand the world of guns and people who don't really understand the people who have guns quite legally. Um, obviously, there's an illegal problem with gangsters having guns and all of that. But what's your initial reaction to this suggestion that gun owners should have their licences reviewed uh, because of what happened in Plymouth?
2: Well, first of all, this is an awful tragedy. And until uh, we have the full details, it's important that there aren't any knee-jerk reactions. Mm. The Independent Office for Police Complaints is conducting an investigation, and we've yet to see what they conclude. Um, But I have no problem with people's social media being checked uh, if they come to the notice of police and have firearms. Of course they should be. And, in fact, there are other constabularies in the country which do this already, and I'm aware of at least one case where a licence was revoked because of social media content.
0: Mm. And I suppose uh, the police would say, well, that's all very well, but we're already stretched. We're already um, running around doing all sorts of things that we shouldn't be doing. A lot of the police complain to me that uh, they're more or less now acting as a sort of social service because they're having to deal with so many people who are not well, uh, that they're having to section and all that kind of thing, that that they really aren't able to do their police work. They, They will no doubt tell us that they haven't got time to do this.
2: Yeah, that's quite possible. But at the same time, the thing to remember is that there are statutory responsibilities in firearms licensing. So the applicant has statutory responsibilities, so do the police. Where I think the gap is, is that the doctor does not have a statutory responsibility. So there's no obligation on a doctor to be involved in the process, to put the medical marker on a a firearm certificate holder's medical notes so that we get proper monitoring of their mental state Mm. during the term of the licence. I I think that's a key area which needs to be investigated.
0: Yes, I think that's probably right. And I think many people would suggest if, say, for example, some individual who wants to apply to get a gun has been in the care of a doctor or who has been in some way under medication for some form of, uh, of mental issue, that that should be something that we know.
2: Yeah, that's quite right, and, um, I, I, and 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 that is indeed what happens. So, with the overwhelming majority of firearm licence applications and renewals, one is asked to provide a medical verification, which is signed off by your GP. Mm. The problem is that many doctors refuse to participate. Some claim to be conscientiously opposed, and some charge outrageous prices for doing so, up to three hundred pounds. Mm. And that is because there is no statutory obligation on the doctor. And I think that's essential because then we will get every certificate holder with a medical mark on their notes so that if any condition develops, they can be picked up.
0: Right. One of the things that I think shocked some people, Christopher, over the course of the last few days was the numbers, the sheer numbers of people who actually have a shotgun license. What can you tell us about the bulk of the people that hold shotgun licenses in this country?
2: Well, the vast majority of the people are either involved in shooting because it's part of their job. So one thing to farmers, gamekeepers, deer managers, people working in forestry, there are all sorts of categories such as that. Um, the other area is people involved in recreational shooting. Many of your listeners will have gone clay pigeon shooting. There are clay pigeon grounds all around the country. And then there are people who are involved in wildfowling game shooting pest control um, so it's it's a big area within our countryside admittedly one that most people don't see mm. um, and that's why so many people are involved mm. in it remember this is a, a an area of activity which puts two billion pounds a year into the economy provides numerous jobs and ensures that if you want to eat game it's there to eat.
0: Mm. And, I mean, in terms of an ongoing... I suppose the problem for a lot of people is the ongoing monitoring of individuals, because, you know, you might buy a gun today um, and be absolutely fine and pass all of the relevant checks, but by some time, you know, in the next year or so, um, you might have become a risk. And, and, and that's the difficult part, isn't it, I suppose, because you can't continually so, monitor so that's, people.
2: Yeah, so that's precisely right. And that is what we've been working on for many years. And, you know, if if... We already have a system whereby if you come to the notice of the police, that information will be fed into the firearms licensing process. So we monitor people throughout the life of the certificate in that way. But we do not yet have that monitoring established on health. And that is the key point. Mm. And for that to happen, we must have the full involvement of the medical profession. And we must have medical markers on people's names.
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely uh, imperative. But I suppose a lot of people, uh, privacy campaigners would say, is that not an invasion of somebody's privacy? To which, again, you have to weigh up the difference between freedom to have a gun and uh, an invasion of privacy to make sure that you are uh, suitable to have such a thing.
2: Absolutely. So, public safety is the key to this system, and privacy is not an absolute right.
0: Mm. Well, as we're beginning to find out, Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Christopher Graffius, uh, executive director for communications and public affairs with the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, um, the gun debate will continue because anyone who knows anything about these terrible events, as they happen, and thankfully they happen very rarely, um, the police were quoted over the weekend as saying that look, the systems that we have in place are pretty good because these things do happen so rarely, and it is an absolute horror for anyone who's been caught up in it a horror for anyone who's lost loved ones and the the, the sheer randomness of the victims that that this guy i uh, don't even want to mention his name really picked off uh, on his way to walking around the streets of plymouth was just horrendous and awful and people will never recover from that and there will be people who have seen things that they'll never forget and it's all absolutely ghastly and horrible however um does it mean that Everybody else who doesn't have an issue, who doesn't have a problem, who is not at risk of gunning innocent people down, including a three year old child, that they should also have their privacy invaded to the point where doctors are forced in some way to hand over medical details of what is wrong with them and what treatment they may have had and, you know, what would be on that. And that, of course, is a massive question in as much as the same question will be asked about the COVID passport issue, whether people should be able to ask you for your relevant medical information in order to go to a football match. We'll be talking about that coming up later on as well, because this weekend saw the return of crowds en masse to football and crowds en masse to cricket and all sorts of other things. And I'm wondering whether that is the breaking point, the, the, the tipping point, if you like, for all of this vaccine passport nonsense to be declared just that, complete and utter nonsense, because if thousands and thousands of people can go to the football, then why can't we do everything else? It's that simple, isn't it?
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
0: Time to say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, how are you? Good morning. Uh, I very much enjoyed watching your... um, uh, appearance on Question Time um, a little bit earlier in the uh, decade, I suppose I would say. Uh, you look an awful lot younger, so you, all this worry has aged you, clearly. Well, I was a lot
1: younger. <laughs> That's why I look younger. I'm, not, now I'm, older, I'm older. Yes, but Normal I mean,
0: you, you basically, if, I'm, if I may summarise you, what you said, was you basically said that, uh, that foreign policy, uh, particularly in places like Libya, in places like Afghanistan, in places like Iraq, had failed dismally, uh, was a complete and utter um waste of time waste of money waste of lives um and you actually got a pretty good ovation from the crowd not not quite the same ovation from the rest of the panelists
1: well the rest of the panelists mostly sat there looking dumb but david dimbleby in one of his his less sparkling performances decided to to, uh, make a joke out of the the fact that i mentioned one of the reasons we were supposedly in Afghanistan, was to suppress the growing of opium poppies, mm. which is particularly ludicrous, because at that time, I haven't checked lately, it's probably still true, uh, huge quantities of opium poppies are grown in this country. Yes. Uh, it, at the time, I said it uh, in fields near Oxford, where I live, which I visited, and, uh, and all I got was, uh, oh, would you grow it yourself personally? It was silly rubbish, but the whole point that I was making was that I suppose uh, reasons for being there didn't stand up on any form of examination. And what were we doing? Nation building? Whatever. The, the other big problem has always been that the, the, the claim that was, was made that Afghanistan was being punished because it was the origin of September the 11th. Uh, anybody who reads a tremendous book called The Eleventh Day by Robin Swan and another mm. author, uh, which I ceaselessly recommend, will, will see perfectly clearly, though the, the documents remain sealed, uh, and I'm not going to answer any questions about what, what the, the truth is, that the, the origin of the September the 11th attacks was, was not uh, Afghanistan, and everybody in the White House and the Pentagon and the CIA have always known that it was a displacement activity. Uh, as for trying to build a nation in Afghanistan, the whole history of the place suggests strongly they don't want us to. But the really, really bad thing about all this fuss is that if you, if you look back at the end of the, of the Carter administration, uh, right at the end of, of the seventies, of the uh, you'll find that his Secretary of State, speaking of Brzezinski, was responsible for this operation to to get to give Russia its own Vietnam. Mm. And in the course of that, the Americans collaborated with Saudi Arabia uh, to fund and, and arm the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan, who pretty much have become the Taliban. Yeah. <laughs> We created this monster, which we now can't control. Uh, our whole policy and everything that we did, the, the, what the poor British soldiers were doing, uh, uh, trying to try, trying to build a sort of welfare state in Helmand province was never going to work. And the, the reason why the, the Taliban continues to succeed is because there's never been a convincing central leadership in Kabul or anywhere in Af- Afghanistan to fight them, we were totally unable, with huge amounts of money, to create an Afghan army to fight them. But doesn't that suggest that there isn't really the will to do so? Hmm. Uh, I, I, you don't have to be in favour of the Taliban to see that, uh, that, that Afghanistan, as soon as uh, outside power is, is, is removed, uh, doesn't want the sort of the sort of government, or doesn't want it with any vigour that we wanted to impose on them. And now you get all these people saying we should carry on intervening, we should stay. They don't mean we; uh, they mean the poor bloody infantry. They mean young men from mm. de-industrialized cities in North America and, and Britain who have to go out and get uh, their limbs blown off and be shot uh, for the sake of a, of a policy which which the people who propound it don't really understand. No, I don't. They know what they want Afghanistan to be. Honestly, if you're if you want to go back to imperialism, then then say so. Say, we, we don't believe that people in large parts of the world can govern their own countries. We will therefore send troops and, and tell them how, how to run their countries. So these days, instead of say, sending them red coats we, we send them feminists. But that, that seems to be the view. But none of these people is ever prepared to stay uh, for the long haul. They always plan to leave. And none of them is, is actually prepared to admit that this is what they're doing. Either you believe in self-determination and you believe in the end of colonial empires, or you don't. Uh, One or the other, not both.
0: Yes, and certainly um, it's been remarkably quiet on the feminist front, actually, since the weekend's uh, events. Not many have been speaking up about the uh, uh, the great uh, taking over of uh, nationalism by the people of Afghanistan, uh, rather than they remain silent. But, but of course, I mean, I think many people now have come to the conclusion that, that Joe Biden came to, which is that the people of the United States of America are no longer interested in sending their young men and women to foreign parts, for no apparent reason, as you say, to get their limbs blown off or to or to be, or to be killed. However, the the the, the method by which the pullout was organised seems to have been about as cat as it could have been. I mean, who on earth leaves civilians behind working um, as British nationals and American nationals in a place that is likely to be taken over by the Taliban?
1: Well, I think it's poor intelligence. I think they, I think the CIA themselves thought it would be a matter of weeks uh, before this, before we reached the stage that we have in fact reached. They didn't understand. Taliban were as well positioned as they plainly were uh, and were taken by surprise with the speed of their takeover. So you, you can explain that. But scuttling is is always difficult to do because mm. you're you're trying to maintain a, a sort of island of order in which you can get out uh, without staying. And Britain is the veteran of many post-imperial scuttles and they never they never end well. One thing two in particular. Uh, one, the, the partition of India. Uh, one of the worst disasters. We always praised ourselves for our imperial withdrawal, but it absolutely wasn't. And the other, of course, the scuffle from what was the Palestine Mandate in, in, in nineteen forty-eight, mm. the, the immediate war uh, which followed between a newly born Israel and its Arab neighbours, uh, which is pretty much still going on. I, the, the, if if you if you if you scuttle away from somewhere you have been ruling, these problems follow. Uh, but at least at the end of the British Empire, we admitted that we could no longer afford to do this thing. What puzzles me? is that we are now quite a poor country by comparison to what we were in our imperial days. But a and, and countries such as, say, Austria or the, the Netherlands or, or Denmark or uh, Italy don't, uh, don't particularly bother with intervening in other people's countries anymore. We still behave all the time as if we were a, a great power. Uh, we still have a great power nuclear arsenal, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's a huge Cold War monstrosity. Uh, we've got this ridiculous floating car park we call a a Target, which we call an aircraft carrier, currently sloshing about the seven seas for no discernible reason. We have enormous illusions about how important we are and how much difference we can make. Ultimately, when the Americans said they weren't staying, that was the end, and Mm. and everyone should have understood that. And and for us to, for for politicians in this country, say, oh, we should have stayed, we've done a terrible thing. And and then some ludicrous person has said that it's the worst crisis in Suez. Does not even know what happened in Suez? <laughs> Suez was a problem where we intervened. We invaded uh, in secret collusion with Israel. We invaded Egypt. And uh, the Americans <laughs> pulled the rug out from under us, as they so often do. Mm. And uh, the whole thing collapsed. Uh, the, the, the thing which compares most with the Suez adventure is both the Blair's Iraq adventure. And Cameron's Libyan adventure, both of which ended disastrously and which we still pay for. And, of course, the, the, the idiotic intervention in Syria, which has turned millions of people into refugees and tens of thousands of people into corpses for no discernible yeah. benefit. We keep doing this. Uh, why don't we just learn? It doesn't work. It doesn't benefit people. If we're gonna, you're going to exercise your conscience uh, in front of other people, then go and help in a homeless charity. Uh, Do something in your own neighbourhood. Don't start intervening Mm. in countries you don't understand and and can barely find on a map.
0: But, of course, the problem with (laughs) Afghanistan now uh, is that if there are mass um, um, evacuations from Kabul, if people who live there and no longer want to live there decide they wish to become refugees, they will eventually head to Western Europe and they will eventually end up uh, probably on uh, one of the beaches somewhere uh, not a million miles away uh, from Hastings. And so, you know, we do have, I suppose... um, uh, to look out for the collateral damage from whatever goes on.
1: Well, I suppose we do. Well, I, this is a consequence of, of, a, of a foolish intervention which we flung ourselves into ill-advisedly twenty years ago, and which we could have got out of a long time ago if people had only listened to voices. I have to say, such as my own, at the mm. time when the, the uh, departure would have been, I think, a good deal less disastrous. These things, oh, of course, the, all the wars I mentioned, pretty much, particularly Iraq. And Syria and Libya have hugely increased the, 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 the vast migration problem, which the whole of Europe now faces. And the, the, these are undoubtedly, if you if you go stirring things up in other parts of the world, it does come back to haunt you these days in, yeah. in very spectacular fashion. But that's not the fault of the people who are against the intervention. It's the fault of the people who intervened in the first place in places they didn't understand and never had any plans to stay in. Uh, I have to say, when the Chinese do imperialism, they stick around. They're never leaving Tibet. And they're certainly not going to pull yeah. out of Xinjiang where the Uyghurs are. Uh, they 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 stay. They're a, they're a modern empire. also the the American Empire is of course actually the forty eight uh, the forty eight states. It's a huge land empire. Uh, this is one of the reasons they're not terribly interested in building up an overseas empire like the one
0: that we have. Sure, but what I'm saying is is that you know in any, in, in in any situation, and if you look at Syria for example, I mean there would be Syrian refugees flooding over the borders to get away from um, what they believe to be persecution, whether or not we were involved in it. And I mean, I know that you have a have a particular um, interest in, in what's happened and what British involvement was in Syria, but there are some terrible leaders and some terrible dictators around the world uh, who will inevitably cause people to leave their countries and search uh, for freedom in the West.
1: Well, no doubt that's, no, no, that's so. but uh, the, the question of, of how, many, how many such people we can take in and, and remain the sort of societies that they, that they wish to come to is, is, is another one, mm. right, which I, I think probably is for, for another time, uh, unless you've got two hours to spare. <laughs> we may the, have to do a
0: special section the, the, on the, that. The, the, the
1: pro- here's another problem. I mean, take Syria, for instance, which intervention, not just Western, but also Middle Eastern, has, has reduced to ruins in many places. What we really ought to be doing is, is now helping them to rebuild so that the refugees, huge numbers of them in Turkey and in Jordan and others further afield, can go home, which is what most genuine refugees want to do if they possibly can. But there's a great hostility to helping Syria rebuild because uh, the the Western governments are absolutely determined on the overthrow of the Assad regime. They're quite what they want to replace it with. And here's another extraordinary Mm. thing. The people with whom we allied and who we helped out in Syria were were pretty much al-Qaeda. Uh, the, the, the Nusra Front, particularly, which uh, which was our ally against the Assad regime, is very closely associated with Al Qaeda, uh, and yet you get people who support the Syrian intervention, weirdly saying how worried they are about Al Qaeda moving back into Afghanistan. Well, are they? Uh, uh, what is their actual attitude towards this organisation? Are they sometimes our allies, or are they always our enemies? Mm. Uh, and I, I don't really understand what the what the thinking is of these people. I don't actually think that they do think. I think they just uh, they just sentimentalise and emotionalize mm. uh, and, and it's from sentimental, emotional foreign policy, which, as I say, people try to exercise their consciences very publicly in other people's countries, mm. that and we I, repeatedly get these these disasters.
0: Yeah. And I think you've, you've sort of hinted at this before as well. There is a certain element of, of, of almost um, conceit, I think, with people like David Cameron, Tony Blair... Probably George Bush as well. Much of their kind of foreign forays were done because they thought they could fix the world somehow.
1: Well, they do. this is the, this is the thing. It goes back to, to the to the amazing character of Mrs Jellyby in Charles Dickens's Bleak House. People who are terribly concerned about foreign parts uh, and, and other people's countries. Who, in, in the case of Mister Jellyby, couldn't even manage her own children. Mm. In the case of of, uh, of Blair, uh, couldn't control or or, or, or repress crime. And disorder in his own country. Uh, it seems to me that charity begins at home. If you if you really want to improve the world, start as close as you can to home and move outwards from there. The idea that you can do it in front of, in, in front of TV cameras easily by intervening with jet bombers and, uh, and, and tanks in other people's countries is, is proven again and again to be false. War, uh, 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 interventionist war always leads to problems both for the people who are being intervened on And for the intervener, and why is there no learning process in this? How many times do we have to bring disaster and turn these places into cauldrons of misery and bring some of that disaster home before we stop doing it?
0: Yeah, I know it's a terribly uh, frustrating situation, but not one that we can easily find an answer to. Stay with this piece if you would. Uh, We've got a couple of things to talk about. I want to talk to you about the education system, which you also wrote about this weekend. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday is with us, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio TV. We're talking to Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday, Columnist. And Peter, just as a uh, a sort of a slight swerve away from the the business of what's going on in Afghanistan, which seems to be getting worse by the hour. um, Let's talk a bit about the education debate because you wrote again about the A-levels this uh, this year, which once again a bit of awarded rather than earned. um, uh, But you say it's the latest in a long sort of... um, deployment of nonsense in the education business?
1: Well, it has to be, uh, because we fundamentally destroyed quality in our education system between 1965 and 1975, a great revolution. I'm not writing a book about it, so I'm tediously knowledgeable about it. Uh, When the old state selective grammar schools uh, were dissolved. Uh, Something, this, this happened in England and Wales. Something very similar happened in Scotland, where they had a slightly different kind of s- selective secondary state school. But what basically happened was that the, uh, the whole idea that, uh, that we would have schools in which uh, children from poor gra- backgrounds could get first-rate education uh, without paying uh, was destroyed. Mm. Uh, what we replaced it with was an American system. Everybody knew when we did this that this would happen, or they denied that it would. The American system of neighbourhood high schools Where if you live in a nice neighborhood, the high school is sort of okay. Uh, If you live in a bad neighborhood, it's pretty terrible. But in any case, the standards are vastly lower uh, than those of the old British state grammar schools. Mm. Again, when I was uh, going to school in the the early 60s and mid-60s, it was generally stated that a set of English A-levels were worth the same as an American college degree. And at that time, there was a thing called the brain drain Mm. where the American universities and employers were plundering uh, British schools and universities for the products of our schools, which were so much better than the products of their own high schools. And no one talks about that anymore, because it's gone. Mm. Uh, what they had to do with the exam system was it, it got too difficult for the comprehensives to cope with. Uh, so in the, in the late 1960s, they downgraded and, and watered down the O-level uh, to the point where it became quite hard to fail. And then that wasn't good enough. So they replaced the O-level with the GCSE, which is a totally different kind of exam. Nothing like as rigorous. And then this, this travelled on further up the scale so that A-levels, which were once extremely difficult, rigorous exams, uh, now aren't. Uh, and the universities themselves had to water down their degrees. And, of course, water themselves down. There are so many universities now, which mm. wouldn't have qualified as universities at all in the 1960s. And they hand out first class. And, uh...
0: we just lost Peter there for a moment. The but... whole
1: system is, is devaluing currency. Yeah. It, 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 what happened this summer? Uh, it, it seems to me to be likely to bring about the next stage, which is almost certainly the abolition of the yeah. proper exams altogether, everything to be done by assessment. And, of course, that will be supervised by social social mobility and politically correct connoisseurs. So you'll never have an objective definition of whether somebody is well-educated or not Again, Well, that may suit yeah, people who, uh, who, do, who don't do well at exams, but it's quite worrying in hard areas of knowledge, such as medicine, to think, the person who's treating you hasn't really been passing particularly <laughs>
0: rigorous scientific. No, I, mean, it's, I find it very perverse as well, don't you? That people who have set standards and therefore have decided to improve those standards by making targets uh, to hit, then work out that the targets are too far away to be hit, so then lower the targets. And then lower the achievement level to reach that excellent target, and so excellence becomes meaningless. There is no such thing anymore. And I and I talk uh, as somebody who went to a grammar school, so I know what you mean. Um, you know, uh, it's now a private school effectively because they didn't wish to be turned into a comprehensive, and it's now independent. Um, well, that, happens. that
1: happens to quite a few, quite a few uh, So they're off. So
0: they're off the market now. For, for so even if they had become reasonably good comprehensives, they're no longer in the state system. But the, the other
1: thing is, once the once the the, the ground schools had gone, they used to be in, in England about one thousand three hundred in, in Scotland, I suppose probably a couple of hundred equivalents, uh, and uh, the the signal in Wales 1,300. that was three hundred, and so there were they were hugely dominant in this, among the secondary schools. They were out distancing the, the private fee charging schools, the so called public schools. Uh, overtaking them, for instance, in getting, in getting their pupils into Oxford and into the professions and, and generally outdoing them in exams because their standards were so high. What actually saved the British private school system and led to its expansion was the, the, the destruction of the ground schools. But the thing is that the, the standards they set are no longer being there. Anybody can now, with these, with these dev- devalued examinations, look good without being good. I, I, my view is a lot of the private schools which carry off huge numbers of A-stars, and whatever well, the equivalent of A-stars is now in, in, in GCSEs, uh, are, are doing it because it really isn't all that difficult to do if you've got reasonably sized classes and, uh, and parental cooperation with teachers. It doesn't require the sort of effort that getting proper A-grades would have got 60 years ago.
4: Mm.
1: Uh, so it's deceptive. It's not, nothing like as good as it looks, but sort of the, the, the feature-age instruments look good. The, ground, the remaining ground schools look incredibly good, uh, though they're nothing like the ground schools that you went to. And the, uh, uh, the, there is a complete delusion about how good our education is. And in Germany, where they, they, maintained, uh, they maintained selection viability uh, at 11, uh, the educational standards are much higher. And in fact, when the old communist East Germany collapsed, they had an almost totally comprehensive system where they had a, a, a small number of selective schools, which you generally had to pass political tests to get into. Uh, when that collapsed, the parents in, in the former East Germany petitioned to have the ground schools back, and they've got them back. And they're very good, mm. and you, I've been to one. And what I found was exactly the thing you want. You have the children of, of dockers and of doctors in the same class uh, studying alongside, because they're both equally qualified to, to, mm. to be there. And selection of the state is done by ability, not by money, not by how, what kind of house your parents can afford, but how much you can benefit from, from education. Um, I don't think anybody looking at Germany can say it's a less prosperous, less stable society than ours, uh, or one which has, got, um, which has got more class prejudice than ours, but it still has. Pretty rigid academic selection in secondary schools over most of the country. I, we could do the same. Mm. It's not it, as East Germany has proved it's perfectly possible to put the clock back on.
0: This Absolutely right. And just one final question, Peter. Going back to Afghanistan. I mean, there's a meeting. Uh, well, not a meeting, but a, a special session of Parliament happening on Wednesday. I don't hold my breath as to what's likely to happen there. um But what do you think Boris Johnson should do?
1: Well, I, I, I think that it, it, it really it, the time has come for, for British Prime Ministers to cease to posture on the world stage, to recognize what sort of country we are, uh, to, uh, to say that what we should concentrate on now is defending ourselves properly. I wrote the other week about the terrible state of our, of, of our basic Royal Navy. Uh, which is used to maintain about 50 destroyers and frigates to, base, to, to defend our coasts. And these are the fundamental workforces of the Navy. It's now down to about a dozen ships. And uh, we, 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 we posture, we have, as I say, this ridiculous Cold War superpower nuclear deterrent, which is unusable. Uh, and we, and we, we send missions to Afghanistan, but we can't defend our own coasts. Uh, to the exactness, we see that we can't, even, we can't even defend the seas around our, uh, our our island from people who want to come here illegally. Hmm. Uh, we really need to reassess our position in the world, recognize we're so obviously an important and, and significant country, they're not as rich or as powerful as we were, and to defend ourselves rather than go off on these ridiculous uh, ridiculous show-off missions which do, as I say, far more harm than good. Yeah. That's what we would say. He's got a sense to say it if he wants to, but obviously he'll, he'll have advisors and so tell him not to do so.
0: Well, we shall see. Peter, good to talk to you again as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist, and making an awful lot of sense, as he has done for many years, uh, not least on Afghanistan, not least on these foreign forays, which are inevitably doomed to failure. Another one is now doomed to fail. I've just been watching a piece of footage of what is going on uh, at Kabul airport, where people are literally running alongside uh, an American Hercules uh, aircraft as it's about to take off, trying to jump on it from the outside. That's what's going on. That's how ridiculous it is. Talk radio
2: across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.